0: Well, go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew 24. We're going to be starting in verse 36 this week, but so far as we've been going through Matthew 24 these past few weeks, we've discovered that Jesus warned his disciples about the destruction of the temple, about the destruction of Jerusalem. He uses prophetic language of the Old Testament to point to the impending judgment that was going to come to Jerusalem in 70 AD, and we know this because we have the benefit of being on this side of history looking back to be able to see that every... Everything that Jesus foretold actually came to pass in that area. And we also know this by what Jesus had said between Matthew 21 and Matthew 23 as he pointed to the fruitlessness of Israel and their disobedience to God, their perversion of God's law, and what would ultimately be uh, their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. Jesus came, in fact, to fulfill the law of God through his sacrifice on the cross, through the victory of his resurrection. That would happen just a few days after the events of him speaking to his disciples right now up on the Mount of Olives. And this would mark a massive shift in God's movement to take his presence and work of redemption to the nations outside of Israel through the proclamation of the gospel by all those who believe. Jesus would fulfill fill and complete the work that Israel had failed to do thus securing salvation for absolutely all who would repent of sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And so therefore the fall of Jerusalem served as an unmistakable sign that God was moving his mission outside of the temple walls throughout the entire world. Now in Matthew 24, 36, which is where we're going to start today, we're going to see another massive shift where Jesus moves from talking about the events that would be happening soon, where he would be talking about what was going to happen in Israel in 70 AD, to where he's actually going to begin now to speak about the future after 70 AD, even after our time. And the language that Jesus uses is obviously different in verses 36 and following, where he changes the emphasis from fleeing the impending judgment that was going to happen in Jerusalem to preparing to live in such a way for future judgment that would happen at a larger scale in the future. Jesus moves from answering one question to answering another question. And I want to begin by reading the entire section. I'm going to read all the way to the end of verse 24. By God's grace, we'll make it that far. Verse 36, Jesus speaking, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now I just want to briefly point out, if you compare what Jesus says in verse 36 to the way he had been talking from verse 4 all the way up through verse 35, you see a difference in the way that he talks. Before verse 36, Jesus had said, look for this sign, look for that sign, look for this to happen, because then you know the judgment is going to come upon Israel. But in verse 36, he shifts to where he's saying no one knows about what he's going to be talking about now. And we'll be talking about that more. Verse 37, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. This is kind of like if you were a follower of Jesus in the 1970s. You know, Larry Norman, you've been left behind. All right, that kind of likens you to that, that terrifying song that scared an entire generation. All right, it's not going to be quite like that. But, you know, if you remember, for some of you know. Verse 42 Therefore, because of these things, stay awake, for you do not know when the day of the Lord is coming. But know this that if the master of the house had known in what part the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? of teeth, Number one this morning, I want to jump right into it. Jesus will return again in judgment. Jesus will return again in judgment. Most people uh, call that the second coming, and that's what Jesus is actually talking about in this section of verses. And so the disciples, if you'll remember, go back to, I think it was three weeks ago when we talked about the beginning of Matthew 24. I pointed out that the disciples basically asked Jesus three questions. They asked him, when will you destroy the temple? Secondly, when will you return? And thirdly, when will be the end of the age? And then I pointed out that Jesus treated it, though, as though they were asking two questions. Jesus treated it as question one was, when will you destroy the temple? Question two was, when will Jesus return and when will be the end of the age? Verse 36 marks a shift between Jesus answering the first question and Jesus answering the second question. And so I want you to understand that verse 36 and verse 34 that we talked about last week really are the two most controversial texts. In Matthew 24 because the meaning of all of it kind of hinges on how you interpret what Jesus is saying in these texts. And opinions are all over the place. I happen to think I have the right one. And so in all of my studying and all of the context that I've seen in this text, what I hope to do is kind of unpack the shift that takes place between verses 4 and verse 35 and verses 36 to verse 51. But it's not really 36 to 51. It's kind of 36 all the way through chapter 25 marks a shift in the way Jesus is addressing his disciples. We've already seen one shift where in verses 4 through 35 Jesus is pointing to this is what you look for. These are the things that are going to happen before the destruction of the temple. But in verse 36 he makes the statement no one knows. As if There aren't going to be any signs that I'm going to tell you for you to look for. There are analogies that Jesus makes that we're going to unpack in just a few minutes. But really, Jesus' attitude about the second coming is you shouldn't treat it like 70 AD. Rather, you should focus on the mission at hand and be faithful to what prepares people for the second coming. That is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus and stewarding the gospel that you believe so that more disciples will be made. And the reason that we look at 36 and we know that he's making a shift is because of two words that in English may seem inconsequential to you, but in the original language, it was a phrase of consequence. And that is the first two words of verse 36, where he says, but concerning those two words in the original language, that's parade, which is a shift in focus or a change of topic. And so imagine if you are in the disciples' shoes, you're standing on the Mount of Olives with Jesus, you're listening to the discourse that he says, when Jesus ends, verse 35, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. As soon as he says, peride, or but concerning, or if concerning, or but if, these things, that, those terms can be translated all those ways, they would have understood Jesus is cap-ending one subject with my words will not pass away and now he's beginning a second subject about the coming of the son of man. And so he shifts from the judgment of Israel in 70 AD to the second coming that has not happened quite yet. And so in Matthew 24:36, that's how I know, he's answering the second question about his return. And the end of the age. And so some people will tell you that when Jesus is talking about the end of the age, he's actually talking about the end of the Jewish age that took place in 70 A.D. and that that was what he was talking about right there. That doesn't really contextually make any sense to me to kind of receive Jesus' word that way. A big reason for that is because of what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20. Jesus then repeats the end of the age when he says, Behold, I will be with you always till when? to the end of the age. And so to kind of interpret what Jesus says in Matthew 24 about the end of the age to have already taken place in 70 A.D., my question would be what has Jesus been doing since then if he hasn't been hanging out with us, okay? And so I think what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 28, 20 is the literal end of the age which is going to happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so even in Matthew 22, 31, when Jesus changes the subject quite clearly there, we note that Paradet is always going to be in the New Testament, a changing of the topic that Jesus is talking about, or anybody that's in conversation is talking about. And so you need to understand that one thing that's important about the future is understanding there will be a second coming. There's going to be a second time that Jesus returns, but it will be a different second coming. His first coming was being born of the Virgin Mary, living the perfect life that you are incapable of living, dying on the cross as a substitute for your death, rising from the dead. The second coming will be the inauguration of eternity. The second coming will be the king returning in triumph as the gospel has triumphed over this world through the making of disciples, through the proclamation that Jesus saves, and eternity will be inaugurated at that time. So for all who believe in Jesus... When we talk about the second coming, it should not provoke fear for you. Rather, it should provoke hope in you that there is coming a day when the curse of sin will not reign triumphantly over this world, that we have a gospel that Jesus has promised will be successful in reaching the world, and all those who believe will enter into his kingdom in a glorious triumph where there is nothing but joy. And I tell you, I can't imagine what a world with nothing but joy would be like. But there will be no pain, there will be no sickness, there will be no death, there will be no bad news in the eternal kingdom of heaven. There will just be the triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where he will rule and reign forever. And there will be nothing but the glory of God in Jesus Christ for all of eternity. And so in Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, Jesus is very clear with his disciples. He points them to look for the signs of the destruction of the temple. But note in Matthew 24, 6, he says, look for these signs. But then what does he also say? He says, the end is not yet. And so we can also look to that for some evidence that he's kind of saying, I'm talking about that subject over there, so reserve my talk about the end until a little bit later. In this section, though, beginning in verse 36, the tone changes where Jesus is pointing out there are going to be a lack of signs. There will be a delay in the return of the master is what he says towards the end. I think it's in verse 49 or verse 50. I don't want to take the time to look. But in this section, this is much different. He even points to his own temporality in human form. Note that Jesus specifically says the father knows when this is going to happen, but not even the son has that knowledge. And so that marks even a different way that Jesus is treating. And if you read verses 4 through verse 35, you know the son acts like he knows pretty well what's going to happen. He says, all these things are going to happen. Look for the abomination of desolation. Look for uh, cosmic signs. In other words, a large-scale judgment from God. Look for these things so that you will know when to get out of Jerusalem so that the gospel will be pushed to the ends of the earth. Here, Jesus changes his posture. Where he says, not even the Son knows. Why would Jesus say that? He's pointing to a chosen limitation that he himself chose when he became a human being. And so we understand that with Jesus being fully God and fully man at the exact same time, there were some limits that he imposed on himself. Philippians chapter 2 points to this when it makes the statement that even though being very much God... He did not, while he was on earth, count equality with God as something to be grasped. In other words, the capability of God the Son is infinite. But while he was on earth, at least, because the Scripture doesn't speak to A post-resurrection, post-ascension. But at that moment while he was on earth, the Son had chosen to limit at least some of his knowledge about the future. And he is simply indicating that in his humanity the father has informed him of what would take place in 70 AD and that's why he gives such great clarity about that but about the future second coming in judgment Jesus himself makes the statement the son doesn't even know the day or the hour uh, the gospel according to Mark records this explanation a little bit differently he adds a little more context in mark 1332 through 37 he says but concerning that day and hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but But only the Father. And in verse 32, he kind of begins by saying, What should your reaction be? Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, puts his servants in charge, eats with his work, but he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus notes That there will be a time in which the master, who is Jesus in this passage, will leave the servants. Who do I think the servants are? The servants are all disciples, Christians, you, me, to live out his work and commands. Now Jesus transitions then to note that then when the master returns, there will be another time of judgment at the end of the age that in his human form, He did not need to share with them because it would not help them in the mission that they had. But Jesus does offer a great deal of information on how to be prepared for his second coming. Rather than fretting over when it is going to take place, Jesus transitions from focusing. If you note from verse 4 through verse 35, he uses the phrase, all these things will happen. But in this passage, he transitions to a different phrase no one knows these things, as though they are not to focus on timing, but rather faithfulness to the mission at hand. And the Church of Jesus Christ has struggled with being obedient to what Jesus says in this passage for a long, long time, especially since World War II. People have been trying to set dates, people have been trying to speculate, people have been saying, oh my goodness. The second coming is like an algebraic equation. If you go back to the original language, when Jesus said no one knows, he didn't really mean no one knows. If you take X to the quadratic equation to Capricorn in its third retrograde, you understand that Jesus, and this really happened when I was a child, Jesus meant by no one knows October of 1994. (laughs) To which I'll tell you, uh, at a 14, that terrified me. I was like, good Lord. What's going to happen? But at 42, I will tell you, I've done a little bit of studying since then. In the original language, no one knows. Do you want to know what it means? That means no one knows. It doesn't have any algebraic equation involved. You know, there are a lot of crackpots out there who I think are also smoking the crack in the pot. And they are making up some wild speculations about things that don't exist. And so my advice is, listen to Jesus, don't listen to them. Jesus is a little more trustworthy than human beings tend to be when they really misinterpret uh, the Word of God to really fit their mission. And really, any time you're listening to a Bible teacher, you need to ask yourself, what mission is this teacher trying to get me on? And does that mission match the mission that Jesus is obviously trying to get me on? Jesus is focused on his servants proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. There are many Bible teachers out there that are going to try to dissuade you to get on a mission where you 're staring at a calendar where you're speculating over things that that uh, don't matter. I mean, just this past week, Baptist Press put out an article that there was a rancher in Texas that that made uh, or he bred four red heifers and sent those heifers to Jerusalem, hoping to hasten the day of the coming of Jesus Christ. I can tell you, if cows mattered where the kingdom of heaven was concerned, Jerusalem would have been in Texas, but it is not all right Jerusalem's in Israel. So you can breed all the red heifers you want to. That has nothing to do with the return of Jesus Christ. And so don't listen to those people. That is a waste of time, all right? If you want to breed heifers, breed them for the reason a farmer would breed them, to make money. That's the only reason to get in that business. Jesus is transitioning here to talk about number two this morning. The future is out of your control, but God commands you control your present. The future is out of your control, but God commands you, control your present. And I know that eats some of you up where anxiety is concerned. Because you're stressed. You're worried. What does tomorrow hold? What does next week hold? I have no idea, but I know who's in control of it. God. And that is Jesus' point in this passage. Jesus' point is that God knows the future, and I need to trust him with it. If just a few days after Jesus makes these statements... Jesus dies on the cross and then three days later rises from the dead, victorious over sin and death. You can trust God with his control of the future. You can trust God with his knowledge of when it's all coming to an end. You can trust God with judgment because someone that has the power of resurrection has the power to control the future for me and for you and for everyone. Trust him with tomorrow, but understand the responsibility that he's given you for today. That's the focus that Jesus has in this passage. He wants the disciples to know that the future return of Jesus is not what they need to sit around and speculate on. Rather, this was about the worldwide movement of the gospel proclamation that needed to happen through them, needs to happen through us, because the next judgment won't be about Jerusalem. The next judgment will be about the whole world. The next judgment will be about every single one of us, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of nationality. Jesus rules and reigns over the entire world. Therefore, in his second coming, he will judge the entire world. The fall of Jerusalem served as a sign for the new work of redemption that needed to be taken to the world. The next coming would mark the end of the age and the inauguration of the eternal kingdom. And Jesus warns against focusing on what God will not reveal to us about the future. Instead, what does Jesus focus on? He notes that the future is formed by the responsibility that God gives his people of living his mission in the present. Note, the first analogy he gives is about Noah. He says, look at Noah's generation. The sign that was given to that generation was two things. The proclamation from Noah about God's coming judgment and Noah's building an ark based on God's commands. Note, that's the same mission in a parallel way that God has given the church. He says, do two things. Proclaim the gospel, build the church through disciples. When Noah built the ark, everyone thought he was crazy. But what was Noah looking at him saying? God's given me a vision. God's called me to be obedient to his vision. I've got to build the ark. Regardless of if, if it makes any sense to the world around me, I've got a responsibility from God. He's coming in judgment. You join me in living out God's mission. It's a similar proclamation from the church of Jesus Christ to the world. God has given us a great gospel through Jesus Christ, through his death, through his resurrection. We are building the church. And I'll tell you, the world around us may look at us and say, how you are spending your time and how you are investing for the future makes absolutely no sense. But that can't deter us because we are building the future that God has promised. God has told us to tell people the warning of the gospel and to make disciples to build the church. That is the sign to this generation. Yes. So you need to stop the speculating, stop looking for signs. We don't know when he's coming. Could be tomorrow, could be 100 years from now, but he wants me to live as though the master will return when the master decides he wants to return. He says the servant isn't going to be given that knowledge because the master... He doesn't owe the servant an explanation. The servant is supposed to humbly submit and steward what God has given me right here, right now. Friend, you may not know when Jesus will return, but you can be prepared for that return at any moment. And that's Jesus' point here. Jesus then shifts and focuses on different analogies that should serve as warnings to those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus. No, he's talking about those who claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ. He tells them, stay awake. Don't sit back and relax. You have a mission to live. There is a world of sinners that need redemption. Therefore, we have a kingdom to build with a gospel that will triumph. Now is the time to get to work. He likens Christ's return to that of a thief coming at an unexpected moment. Again, this is very different from earlier in the chapter. There's an emphasis that every day matters because Jesus has given me a responsibility And I don't know when the master will return to see how I have invested my every day. And that is the focus of a disciple. Look at what he says uh, in Luke chapter 21. He records uh, really the same conversation, adds even more context that they need to watch themselves. He says, starting in verse 34 of Luke 21, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Friend, I'll tell you, there is plenty that can distract you from the cause of Christ. There is plenty in this world that you can invest in that has absolutely nothing to do with the gospel, has absolutely nothing to do with eternity. And Jesus is saying, be careful. Be careful how you invest. And how do you know what to invest your life in? The Word of God. Word of God's been clear. He says, invest in that which will further the gospel. Invest in that which will make disciples. Invest in that which will build the church. Invest in that which will leave a legacy to your children. Invest in your family. Invest in building a world around you that is better than the one you were born into. And live as though the gospel will triumph through you because God has promised that it will. Friend, pray that you may have the strength to escape from the trap. Of this world, you know it's not just alcohol that can get you drunk in this world. You can take that analogy and understand. Yeah, is Jesus talking about alcohol? Absolutely. Don't be a drunk. All right, don't do that. But also, don't get drunk on fame. Don't get drunk on envy. Don't get drunk on the riches and cares of this world. Don't get drunk on the power that this world has to offer you. Friends, this world is filled with temptation to distract you from what God has said does matter so that you will focus on that which ultimately, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, really doesn't matter. And that is a temptation that absolutely every one of us must sober up and realize that we are open to. All of us are tempted to focus on things that won't matter. All of us are tempted to look at life and say, Oh, I don't think Jesus will come back tomorrow. So my decisions today don't really matter. Nothing that I do today is really that consequential. So I'll serve Jesus next week. I'll do it next month. I'll do it next year. I'm only 20 years old. My choices don't really matter right now. It's amazed me over the past 20-some years of pastoral ministry that I've seen that statement go from I'm only 20 to I'm only 30 to I'm only 40. I mean, I've had some people 62 years old, oh, i got plenty of time left, and I'm like, I don't think you do. You don't look good. You You are not aging like a champ, all right? You better get it together, buddy. But that's the lie that this world tells us. It wants us to believe we can waste it and it doesn't really matter. What do you think the strategy of Satan is? He wants to convince you, you got plenty of time. But Jesus is telling us, you don't know when the Master is going to return. You don't know when he's going to hold you accountable. You don't know. Therefore, live as though you will always be prepared for the return of the master. The Apostle Paul says something similar in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, in, starting in verse 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awakes. He's the same terminology Jesus uses, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Even the half-brother of Jesus, James, says in the book of James, he says, life is a vapor, fades quickly. Friends, some of you want to have one foot in worldliness and another foot in the gospel. It doesn't work that way. Awake. Make the best use of your time is Paul's admonition. How much time are you wasting on things that don't really matter in eternity? Maybe make that a little bit less this year. Maybe invest a little bit more in the kingdom of heaven this year than you did last year. The disciples were even wasting time quibbling about wanting to know the end. They want to know when it is. And Jesus is looking at them saying, you're wasting your time. This is a warning that you even lose focus on the gospel with by speculating worthlessly on theological spectrums while you aren't even engaged in disciple making. It is a tragedy to have the truth right in front of you when you aren't applying it to making disciples. I've had the privilege to do a lot of seminary. Too much, all right? Got all sorts of degrees, all sorts of Bible pedigrees. I don't know if it matters in the end, but I know some things. But it has amazed me that people can be so gifted in their theological understanding and still waste their lives. I'll tell you, we got people all over the spectrum where end times beliefs are, from pre-millennial to amillennial to post-millennial to pan-millennial, and that means everything's going to pan out in the end, all right? <laughs> all right. Some of you have no idea about the three things I just said, all right? You're like, you're like, that's my millennial position, I don't know. I don't even know what you're talking about at this point. But I will tell you, none of them really are that far apart because the reality is is they all can be used to tempt us to fall the way the disciples are falling where they want to speculate about the future rather than live for Jesus right here and right now. Whereas one system will be like, all right, we got to breed some red heifers. Let's hasten the day. Huge waste of time. And on the other end of the spectrum, they're like, well, let's build Christendom and find ourselves a new Savior. Because Jesus came back in 7080. Never going to do that again. So we got to do it ourselves. Same. Waste of time. Speculating. Jesus says live for the present in discipleship so that the kingdom will be built through the church of Jesus Christ. Obey him today because you can't procrastinate for the final exam. Yeah. You must make your life matter because there are some of you, and you're even young, and you don't think your choices matter. I don't know if I should tell this analogy because somebody's probably going to get offended by it, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> I did it in the first service too, and I get a little more weary of it every minute. but. I'll be driving down the road with my kids and I love taking rides. I love driving through neighborhoods, looking at houses I can't afford. One of my favorite things to do in the world. And every once in a while, we'll get on like a main road or even a main highway, an interstate even. And you ever get out on the road and you see someone walking down the side of the road and you're confused as to how they even got there? Because you're like, if you're walking down this road, where did you start? Because I don't even know how you got this far. And I'll look and they all often look disheveled. They often look down on their luck. They often look like they've had a hard life. And I use it as a teaching moment for my kids. And I look at them and I point to that person. right, this is the part that's going to offend you. And I say, every choice that person has ever made has led them right where they are right now. And I look at my kids and I'll say, your Decisions matter. Some of us, we buy this lie that there are inconsequential choices in this life where the mission of Jesus is concerned and there aren't. There are no inconsequential choices. There are no inconsequential decisions. You will reap what you sow in this life. So if you want to reap the gospel... You will sow a life that says, I believe the master is returning and he will settle up every single account. So I've got to live every single day as though the master might return tonight. That is why Jesus uses the language that he does. He says, it's like a thief in the night. It is like a master who's on a long journey. And an unfaithful servant might say, well, since the master has delayed, I'm going to act like I'm the master now. And Jesus says, don't live like that. Because I am returning and you don't know when. And if you are not faithful to my gospel, it means you never believed it to begin with. Jesus wants you to understand that it is a tragedy to claim belief in the gospel, but to not live for the gospel. So number three this morning, understand, build a life that is ready for judgment. Build a life that is ready for judgment. Jesus has given you, let me tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, He has given you responsibility. He's given you a responsibility to steward His gospel. He's given you the greatest gift that you could ever receive, and that is the redemption through faith in the gospel. And he looks to you, and he says, now spread that gift all over the world. Give it to others. There are sinners in this world desperately in need of a Savior to redeem him, and that is why Jesus talks about investing his gospel. He says, between verses 45 and 51, basically you can sum it up. He says, blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. This is if you're living for the gospel, you're prepared. This is a vital thing for followers of Jesus to understand. Your choices matter because they serve as a reflection on the validity of your faith. So friends, I ask you the question, how are you investing? What are you doing? What is the focus of your life? Are you building something that Jesus isn't even interested in? Or can you turn it around and begin to invest where it really matters? Some of you want just enough Jesus to make you feel pretty secure about eternity, but not so much that it might make you sacrifice something in the here and now. Friends, that's not the faith of the New Testament. Friends... Are you building something that Jesus would be interested in? Are you investing the things that he has made you responsible for? Some people have pointed out from time to time, and I'm always listening. I know what you mean by the little subtle things you say. Uh, But you say, you know, you never talk about the end times. You never preach on eschatology. You want to know why? Because I don't care. That's why. All I'm right, real trepid about this series. I was like, why did I start the book of Matthew? Didn't I know 24 was coming? <laughs> All right, But no, I do care about it because it's in God's word. But here's the key. I hate it because what it typically breeds in people is that speculation. You want me to throw up a chart so that you'll know when the account's going to become due so a week beforehand you can actually start caring. But that's exactly why Jesus didn't tell us. The speculating, absolutely pointless, absolutely worthless. Jesus looks to his disciples and he says, live as though it could happen at any time because God is watching all of the time. And he's going to return. He's going to hold me accountable. He's going to hold you accountable. So what do I focus my ministry on? I focus my ministry on having the posture that Jesus had. Jesus had the posture of no one knows, so be ready all the time. No one knows, so invest wisely right now. Friends, grow in the gospel. Invest with the gospel. Build the church. Make disciples. You are responsible. If you don't do those things, stop calling yourself a Christian because you aren't. In Matthew 22, 11 through 14, Jesus is really specific. He says, starting in verse 11, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. See, in this analogy, in this parable, Jesus points to the necessity of wearing the clothes of God's kingdom, the wedding garments. What he means is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that changes your life through faith. If you aren't wearing that, then it will be clear by how you live. If you are wearing it, it will be clear by how you live. Because if you don't have the right clothes on, you will be cast into outer darkness. How would I sum up this entire section? Frankly, I look at this section and I read, don't waste your life. Don't waste it. CT Studd said many many years ago, one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, everything that Jesus tells us about his kingdom in this section is to warn us against wasting our lives. The curse of sin and the struggle against it, the distractions around us are so real, they're so big. We are all apt to give in to that temptation. But friends, you must know the power of the Holy Spirit that you received the moment you came to faith in Jesus Christ gives you a divine stewardship by which you are responsible and able to live a life that matters. The delay of the master doesn't mean he won't return sooner than you think. In James chapter 5, starting in verse 7, we're told to be patient until the coming of the Lord. And I think it's a very fitting analogy that the half-brother of Jesus gives us. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it? Until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I'm not a farmer, nor do I claim to be. But I do know enough, and I've been to enough farms to know that farmers, when he says the farmer is patient, he doesn't mean that the farmer just sits in his house, staring at his window at the dirt, being patient for the produce to grow. No, I don't know if you know this, but farmers, they work. Work their hands to the bone. They prepare the soil. They sow seed in the soil. They care for it. They weed it. They don't just look at the weeds growing around their crops and say, I wish there was something I could do, but I'll just trust God with it. No, they work. They steward. They give of their lives to everything to grow. But the farmer is also smart enough to know he can't control the rain. The farmer is smart enough to know that ultimately he can't make it happen. So he waits while he works. But work he does. Friends, in this passage, the half-brother of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit is telling us, Be patient. He's coming. But get to work. Because patience doesn't look like you sitting around speculating and wasting your life. Patience looks like a life that believes the gospel enough to invest in the gospel and with the gospel because you know the master will come and we must be ready. Because after his return, judgment. Those who would not come to Christ have a lot to fear. But those who follow Jesus, friends, we have nothing to fear because the faithful follower of Jesus longs for the day because the harvest will be abundant in his kingdom. A few application points this morning. First, Christians look forward to the return of Jesus. I say that because I know some of you are afraid. Some of you are worried Friend, don't be afraid because understand that at the return of Jesus, everything that is wrong with this world will be made absolutely right. There will be nothing but joy in the kingdom of heaven. And I know none of you can even imagine what that must be like. I can't imagine it either, but I know it'll be good. No tears, no pain, no death, no suffering, forever. Secondly, live for the gospel to prepare for the future. Live for the gospel. To prepare for the future. How do you prepare for the return of Jesus Christ? Obey everything in this book. Build a life around all that God has revealed to you. Thirdly, build a life for the gospel. I say it that way because a lot of you build a gospel for your life. You build a gospel that fits what you want, what you're doing. No, 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 that's not the way it works. You build your life for the gospel. Then fourthly, Jesus will return to judge everyone. Every single one of us will stand right before him. Have you trusted him? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Friend, if you're in here right now and you've not come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've not come to him for forgiveness, I want you to understand, you've sinned against him. But in great love, God poured every ounce of his wrath for your sin onto his son, Jesus Christ. And when he died on that cross, he paid the penalty for you, for me. Three days later, he rose from the dead, winning victory over sin and death. So Jesus doesn't just forgive us. That's not enough. Jesus gives us victory over the very sin that kills us. He gives us victory over death that scares us. And friend, if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, he will save you right here and right now and begin an eternal relationship with you. And which you don't fear judgment, you welcome it. And you long for the day when he returns. Because sin will be no more.